Well, as I said, we're going to be back in the book of Daniel next week, and I found it interesting, even that passage I looked at this morning referred back to Daniel chapter 2, and I started thinking, wow, it's been a long time since I've been in Daniel, so I'm going to be refreshing my memory this week. I encourage you to do the, the same thing. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. We'll do that in just a few messages because... If you have read ahead, you know chapter 10 of Daniel is that passage where uh, Daniel prays and an angel is dispatched and he arrives. He's, he talks about the prince of Persia and those kinds of things. And then chapter 11, it's in the kings of the north and the south and there's all kinds of details going in there. And in chapter 12, he, he ends it all and I'll do my best to make sense of it for you, but... It would be good if you, you read ahead, but tonight I want to go a completely different direction, and I think I'll, I'll introduce it this way. One of my favorite sections of the, the New Testament is when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and uh, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees try to box with God, as they say. He's teaching in the Temple Mount, and they try to ask him questions that are going to, to stump him, and... One of those moments in particular is recorded in Luke chapter 20. We're not going to turn there, but I'll just reference it as introduction before we go tonight. And there were some Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they tried to use this absurd question from a limited portion of Scripture to disprove the resurrection. And it's the passage about a brother who has a wife and... He dies without a child, and then the, according to the law of leveret marriage, his brother is supposed to marry her because he didn't have an heir to produce an heir. But then they take it further, um, like a lot of scoffers do. You know, they'll, people that uh, aren't really interested in knowing what the Bible says are, are going to come up with all kinds of crazy questions like, you know, what about the pygmies in Africa or whatever, whatever. And so this story was, well, this wasn't just one brother that died. They had seven brothers, and all of them died. And it ends, you remember, with them saying, finally the woman dies also. I'm not sure I'd want to marry that woman if she outlived seven men. But she dies, and they say, in the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? You can just hear this smugness in their, in their question. I mean, they thought... The question would put Jesus in such a theological quandary that his position on the resurrection would, be, would, would force a contradiction and he wouldn't know how to answer. They would just publicly embarrass him and then all of his followers would, you know, would leave. And it's the proverbial bringing a knife to a gunfight. Um, they were spiritually ignorant men and the Lord states that in his answer. He answers their question. He says, in heaven will not marry nor be given in marriage, will be will be in an eternal state like, like the angels. And then in the parallel passage of, in Matthew 22, he, he makes a condemning statement. He says, you believe this because you don't understand the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And in that passage, Jesus shows the Scriptures reveal God's supernatural power that marriage is designed for earth and yet God's covenant with you is permanent and forever. It goes beyond the grave. 
But the point I want you to remember is that when Jesus answers that question, He says spiritual ignorance is because we don't know the Bible, we don't know the Scriptures, or we fail to understand or to believe or to grasp the power of God. You remember He quotes, He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of those men are dead, but God says He is their God, meaning that they live even as those Sadducees are asking the questions. And the Sadducees had no excuse for not knowing the, the Bible or the power of God, but, but sadly, even some Christians who also don't have any excuse are ignorant of the Bible, and they, because of that, they lack God's power in, in their lives. A, a person who is typically struggling with sanctification is normally not someone who has appropriated or learned a lot of the Scriptures. Or they know a lot of the Scriptures, but they've never experienced its power by putting it into practice. There's a gap between what they know versus what they practice and, and, and do. So it's not just Bible knowledge or Bible information, but it's, but it's practicing those types of, of things. There are some Christians who believe that God is doing things all the time outside of Scripture. So they're always looking for the voice of God or the prompting of the Spirit or whatever. And, the, and, and they believe God's talking to them all, all day long in, in, in their mind, telling them how to dress and where to go for lunch and all kinds of things. But, but they go outside of the boundaries of Scripture in, in that and... They don't know the Bible or they've twisted it in, in some way. So they attribute things to God that have nothing to do with, with Him. And there are other people on the other side of the coin, you might say, who know the Bible so well that they could quote you the nuances of a Hebrew verb. But they don't understand the power of the person of God. To them, the, the Bible or the text are just dead words on, on a page. The Bible is information to be studied, not a book revealing a person to be worshipped and experienced. And the correct way to live is to grow in, in, in both the knowledge of the Scriptures and grasping the, the power of God. You must know the Bible, and then God's power will grow in, in your life, and there's no shortcut to that. There, but there are some specific things that we can know that will help us immediately, things that we don't have to guess about. You might think of them like food that's already cut up for us to eat. You know the Bible talks about milk and meat and not to stay on milk too long, graduate to, 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 to meat. But, but, but there are some dinners that are already cut up in the Bible. They're served on a platter for us. And, and I want to remind you of some of them tonight. So while all of the Bible reveals the will of God. What is the will of God for you? Everything from Genesis to Revelation, that's the will of God because that's God's voice. But there are about seven passages in particular in the New Testament that state the will of God specifically. So if you're struggling to know what do I do, how do I live as a new Christian or as a Christian who's kind of wandering all seven of these that I'll give you tonight is where you're supposed to start. These should be things that, that you, are, you are mastering. And if you've ever struggled to know God's will for your life, I'll show you what it is from Scripture tonight. Did you know that God wants you to know His will 
more than you want to know it. In fact, he's gone to great lengths to share it with you. Um, the copy of the scriptures is evidence of that. In fact, the Bible even admonishes us not to be foolish about God's will. Ephesians 5, 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And a lot of people would say, I don't want to be foolish. I want to understand what the will of the Lord is. I just don't know what God's will is. And as I said, God wants you to understand His will far more than we want to understand it. God, don't get the view that God is somehow up in heaven playing some cosmic game of go fish with you, where you say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? And God says, Go fish. Or, you know, the game that you used to play maybe with your, your, your siblings where, you know, warmer, colder. Lord, I'm, am I close to finding your will about this matter? And God says, you're getting warmer. That's not the way that it works. I counsel many people who live like that. And they're folks that love the Lord, but they've been poorly taught or misinformed about how to discover God's will. And they they may come to different decision points in their, in their life and they'll ask questions like, what is God's will for my job or where should I go to college or who should I marry or where should I go to church? And I've heard some pretty interesting ways that people said they discovered God's desire about those things from dreams to visions to all kinds of bizarre circumstances. Uh, and all of those are good questions. And all of those are questions that would be wise to pray about and seek God's God's counsel about, but, but God's will in those specific particular areas that are not revealed by Scripture are discerned by knowing His Word well. And then the Bible tells you, do what you want to do. Or to say it another way, we should probably spend less time trying to ask for God's will and more time knowing God in His Word. Because the right question to ask in those unrevealed situations is not what is the end destination, but what is pleasing to the Lord. Questions like, should I take this specific job? And then asking, seeking, waiting for God to say yes or no should be replaced with questions like, do I desire what God desires? Does this job help me advance my role in the kingdom? Is it wise? Have I sought counsel? And if all of those things are true, then you're free to choose. And you're free to trust in God's providence because He will, will guide you. That's a, that's a better solution than trying to follow promptings. Know God well through the Bible and then trust His caring providence in your life. And thankfully, most of the real problem areas are settled for us in Scripture. In fact, I think you look at these passages tonight, the Bible reveals seven things that we don't have to wonder about. It is God's will. For us. John MacArthur wrote a little book called Found God's Will. I don't remember whether he does seven or how many. I'm sure that he covers all of these passages because it's the Bible and they're very explicit. But I want to go over these seven with you tonight. As I said, you're going to be moving around. So the first place I want you to turn is 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy, Timothy chapter 2. Seven things that we know are God's will. And the first one is, it is God's will that you be saved. It's God's will for you to be saved. You can say that for anyone that you talk to based on what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now the, the context is Paul is calling on the Ephesians to to pray for their officials, those over them. You remember this is Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, and Paul starts with instructions to men, and then he gives instructions to women. He says, likewise, I want the women don't come to church uh, dressed in, in ways, whether it's flaunting wealth or, or uh, prom- promiscuously, where it's look at me, look at me, you want all eyes on God. But before he gets to the women, he tells the men, I want the men to pray, I want you to pray for these officials that rule over you, kings in, a, in authority. And while the Ephesians didn't get to vote, this passage says that rulers in the Ephesians' day are just as unsaved as the ones in our day. It's the reason he tells them to pray. Pray for them because God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray, you'll live a peaceable life and then Pray because God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is God's desire that all men, all people, all over the world be be saved. Paul says there's no question about that. So live a peaceable life yourself and pray for them. God does not want men to sin. He does not want people to perish or, or to die. In fact, the Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the, the wicked. He hates sin, he hates wickedness, and so he desires that men turn to Christ and be saved. You never have to wonder if it's God's will for someone to trust Christ. It, it is. But while that is what God desires, it's not what God decrees. There are actually two words in the Bible for will. There is God's will, as in God decreed it, or He willed it. Um, He decreed it, and it will come to pass. It's a word that's translated in your English as as will, God's will. That word is used in, in the Bible when it speaks of God's will of command, or God's will of decision, or as I said, God's will of decree. That's an entirely different word than than the one that Paul uses here, where he says God's will of desire, or the word that he uses in this passage is, is thelo, meaning his, his desire or his wish, which is the other way that that word is used. This word is used for God's will of desire. God desires all men to be saved. He wishes, he wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, even though we know that not all people will be saved. We're not universalists, or as Jesus even says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And again, passage that you know well, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And how many people, based on your memory of that passage, are on that road? Many, right? There are many who enter through it. Then he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few on that road. There will be few, not many, who will enter the the kingdom. You will be in a minority uh, in, in the world. 
who will be saved is included in God's will of decree. But who God desires to be saved is much larger and includes all people. God's will of decree is sure, it's fixed, it's, it's, it's a mystery of who's included in that. We don't know who will be saved. Charles Spurgeon said this, If God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. But since He didn't, I must preach whosoever will, and then whatsoever believes, I know that He is one of the elect. That's pretty good evangelism. But God's will of desire is just as sure, and it's not a mystery. Your heart should be full of God's will of desire that none should perish. You should offer the gospel to all men. But your confidence should be based on God's will of decree, which cannot fail. None that the Father has given the Son will be lost. Never forget, though, our evangelistic efforts are not limited to His decree. They're based on His desire, which is what Paul is saying here. This is evangelistic prayer. Pray for these unsaved leaders because God desires them to be saved. And we're to preach the gospel to all people and plead with them that God desires them to be saved. So you can know that for sure. You don't have to guess about that. Here's the second one. It's God's will that you be controlled by the Spirit, which means the Scriptures, not some mystical force. Turn over to or back to Ephesians chapter 5, another passage that you know well. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. It says the will of God is that you be filled with or under the control of the Spirit. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the, uh, what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The contrast there between being under the direction of alcohol and being under the direction of the Spirit. And Paul's clearly not talking about being baptized in the Spirit or being indwelt by the Spirit because that happened at salvation and other passages make that very clear. He, he's giving a command here for believers to live under the Spirit's influence. And I think you probably know that. You know that passage. But you may not know that Paul tells us how that happens. How do you, how do you put yourself under the control of the, of the Spirit? And the parallel passage in the book of Colossians, defines for us what it looks like or means to be under the control of the Spirit. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Here's the parallel passage. Now notice Paul substitutes in to the Colossians, and all these letters, these two letters are read at the same time. Colossians are to be read to the Laodiceans, and no doubt whether that's Ephesus or not, the Ephesian letter was, was known. But the Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell it within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's, a, it's the exact parallel. So Paul tells us here what he means by being under the control of the, of the Spirit. It, it means to let the Word of Christ abundantly dwell or take up residence in your mind. Or to say it another way, let the Word of God be at home in you. Be so familiar with the Bible that it lives inside of your head. And 
And that will place you under the Spirit's control, meaning that you're letting the Word of God control you. It has a sobering effect, a peaceful effect, as opposed to wine, which puts you out of control. One of the clear evidences that the, the Pentecostal movement and the idea that, that the, when someone is in the Spirit, that's not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is because typically they're out of control. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You're under the power of the Holy Spirit. You're under the control of the Word of God, and you have the fruit of the Spirit, which you are self-controlled. You're not fooling around on the floor or, or babbling in, in some way or, or other fanciful ideas. You're, you're stable. You're peaceable. You're, you're in control of yourself, and the Word of God is taking control of your life. It's guiding you. So when you obey the Bible, Paul says you're yielding to the Spirit's control. It's... It's not a mystical experience. Oh, it's joyful. It feels like you've been lifted up into the third heaven. It's emotional. There's no doubt about that. You've prayed at times. You've felt what, what you would call the Lord speaking to your heart as you've read the Word. I mean, you know God is real. It's, it, it's not uh, you know, something that's just all intellectual. Your body, soul, and, and spirit. So the Lord communes with you. What it looks like is the Word of God is, is controlling your actions. It's an obedient choice empowered by, by the Spirit. So when your mind is full of the Word of God, the Spirit does His work in you and is, is evidence that He's working in you. And His work is to make you like Christ. So it's God's will to be saved. It's God's will to be controlled by the Spirit. And it's God's will to be sanctified outwardly. And I'll show you the inward, you know, next. It's God's will to be sanctified. So, 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I know I don't usually do this to you. You're spoiled. You stay in one passage. You don't have to move around a lot. This says it's God's will for you to be sanctified outwardly, to be holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still the more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he explains what he means. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that, they, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is, an, is the avenger in all these things sexual immorality. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's a sobering passage. The passage says that it's God's will that you be holy, that you be pure, that you abstain from all forms of immorality, both in mind and body. 
It says engaging in pornea, which is the, the word for sexual immorality here. It's a general term. It's not anything specific. It's not just talking about physical fornication. People get in sin and they start nuancing things. Well, I only did this, but I didn't do that. that this word doesn't allow for any of that. It's, it's sexual immorality in general. Abstain from all forms of it. To engage in it, verse 1 says it's to displease God. Verse 2 says it's against God's will. Verse 3 says you're acting like an unbeliever, the Gentiles. Verse 6 says to engage in immorality is to defraud another person. You're defrauding the person that you're looking at and lusting after or engaging in something with. Verse 7 says it brings God's vengeance. And verse 8 says to do it is rejecting God Himself and, and His Spirit. Pretty serious passage. Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and, of, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Or I like what the NIV puts it, how the NIV puts it. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Look at this verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice the, the knowledge part. This is not praying and getting psyched up and God zapping you with, with some type of holiness. It says that each of you know. It's the word for knowledge. You know how to possess your, your own vessel in sanctification and honor. It's a vessel, euphemism for your body. You, you are to know how to possess your own body in sanctification and honor. You know this, not feel this or or be moved to this. It's knowledge. You know what's right. You know what's wrong as it relates to this. It's settled. That's in contrast to not as the Gentiles who do not know God. So you're to know. Why? Because you're a Christian. Contrasted to the Gentiles who do not know God. Knowing God means that you know what is pleasing to Him. Know what His will is. If you want to summarize this passage, it says Christians are not to have the morals of the world because they know God. Christians know God, and, and if you do have the morals of the world, it's a sure sign that you're off base. Don't do that. They don't know God, but, but you do. So there's the outward part. It's God's will to be sanctified. It's also God's will to be a living sacrifice, or you could say this is internal sanctification, if you will. Another very familiar passage, uh, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. You probably don't have to turn to this one. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's so weird preaching when people have phones and, and iPads. Not that that's bad, um, because whenever I say turn somewhere, I, I'm, it's normal. I, I hear pages, and I don't hear pages, not all kinds of pages. I hear some pages, but not all kinds of pages, which means you're swiping on your phones, and that's, that's fine. It's, it's as long as you're going there. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove 
what the will, the will of desire, what the desire of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what God desires is, is good and acceptable and, and perfect. As I said, number three and number four uh, kind of go together because both of them are talking about an aspect of sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, the, the outward part. Know how to possess your vessel. Uh, Romans 12 is talking about an inward transformation. In both places, Paul says your goal is the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and, and perfect. It's, it begins here with offering yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That's verse 1. You know this passage, I'm sure. But consider that it mentions discerning or proving the will of God, what, what God desires. Thelema. So, based on the mercies that you and I have in Christ, we offer our whole person to God, our, our whole self, body, soul, and spirit, as a sacrifice. And that's your reasonable service, the way I memorize that in the King James. Which means our spiritual service now, as contrasted to a, to a, a dead animal or an offering that was made in the Old Testament. How you worshiped God, you went to the temple, and you offered a grain offering or an animal offering, and... And now we are the temple. The Spirit of God lives in us. So we offer all of ourselves, not, not just something dead. We're alive. We've been crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You offer all of your, yourself. And what that looks like is we resist the conforming pressures of the world, trying to press us into the mold of the cosmos, Satan's thinking. Instead, we're transformed by the, by the renewing of our minds with God's Word. And when we do that, we, we can test and see God's desires in, in life. What a promise that is. Don't expect to discern God's Word and His desire if you're not willing to, to live for it. Being self-willed is in direct contrast to being self-sacrificing. And that's what a Christian is. I mean, if you want to know what God desires, if, if, you, you know, if you're saying, I'm to know the Scriptures, and then outside of what the Scripture says, then these are discernible matters, where I work or what I, what, what I do, where I go on vacation, the, the, these kinds of things that, that are not moral or ethical. They're things that Scripture doesn't specifically say do or don't. In those kinds of matters, um, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I want to seek counsel. I want to do all of those things. But this passage says I can discern what that, what that is. Um, I do that by, by being, being full of the, of the Word of God and, and resisting the conforming pressure. Don't... Don't find it odd if you're confused and struggling, if you've if you're, you got one foot in the world and one foot in the church, or you're not in the Scriptures a, a lot. That It just has a sanctifying effect on you when you sit under the proclamation of the Word. When you're in the Word, it, 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 it washes you out clean every day, and, and then you have God's heart. I mean, if what you're saying is, is um, if you desire what the Lord desires, then do what you desire then you need, to, you need to follow this, this passage. If you want to know God, what God desires, then give yourself away, give your rights away, throw your agenda away, and watch peace and fulfillment come in your life. Here's the fifth one. One that I have wrestled with and through again 
over this past two years. And I'm not sure that I really landed everywhere I'm supposed to land in all the situations. But number five, it's God's will to be in submission to authority. Remember to 1 Peter chapter 2. You probably went to this passage. Go to Romans 13. Fortunately, it split churches and was used as a heavy-handed thing to, I think, trample on some consciences of Christians, but don't question the motives of the folks, at least the preachers that were using it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. This defines just like Romans what they're supposed to do for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And the implication there is the, fool, the, the ignorance of foolish men are, could even be those who are in, in power or rule over us, but clearly the world around us. Act as free men. So you're not ultimately under them. You, you act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the, the king. It's God's will that we be submissive to authority, whether that's in the home, it's in the government. And again, I'm not telling you that I know exactly how you're supposed to work all those angles in your specific life, but I can tell you it's God's will for you as a believer to be submissive. We are not to be known as troublemakers. We're not to be obstinate fist shakers. We're not to be marked by that and known by that. We're to do right and we're to, to the best of our ability, try to be at peace at all men. I know there are times when, when right is trampled and that's not always possible, but it should be because of them and not us. And it, it should be the exception and not the, the rule. The reason is... God is the basis of all authority. And being obstinate like that, being known as a, as a rebel, if you will, distracts. They, they'll, they'll target your obstinacy rather than what they really should be hating and will hate, which is Christ and the, the, the gospel. And instead of the gospel, they'll, they'll surely key in on, on the fact that you are, you are this... This way, you probably have all kinds of opinions like me that fall in Romans 14, um, vaccines and masks and all kinds of those things, and I promise you I have really, really strong opinions on all of those things. And I'm not telling you that this passage says that you have to submit to whatever the government tells you to do. What I am telling you is that your attitude should be one of submission. And you, if you are forced to rebel on the case of conscience or go against what they say, it should be because you have wrestled through that, not because you're thumping your chest, because that is the, the, 
bad attitude, an attitude that will distract. Here, we're to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor, honor the king. The last one here, or second to last, number six. It's God's will that you and I suffer. And if you do what number five says, sometimes you have to to stand against authority because there's a higher authority being God, you're probably going to fall into number six here. And I can't really tell you I like this one on the surface, but it's God's will that you and I endure suffering. Turn over to chapter four of 1 Peter, the same book, in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that has come upon you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Caveat. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but he is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is without difficulty that the righteous, or if, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And he just defined for us how you suffer according to the will of God. You suffer according to the will of God for the name of Christ. In verse 14, you suffer according to the will of God, not as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but as a Christian. And if you do that, then that's according to the will of God. Peter says it's God's will that you suffer for Christ's sake. We saw that this morning in, in a biblical ministry. We just want to summarize, I think, what Peter is saying here. Maybe an oversimplification. Don't suffer for being a jerk. Don't suffer for being a sinner. But do suffer for following Jesus. In fact... We referenced this this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Persecutions and sufferings and such happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who live godly will suffer. And I guess I would just say to you, if you don't have a theology that allows for suffering and God's sovereignty, even in the suffering and over-suffering, then, then you're not going to get very far serving the Lord, or you're going to become confused very quickly. It doesn't mean that you enjoy it. I pray against it. I ask the Lord all the time, remove this, 
but I usually caveat that with not my will, but, but yours be done, just like Jesus does in the, in the garden. And we know from Ecclesiastes, God does not promise us a life without difficulty, but he does promise us grace and comfort, which is far better. Would you prefer to have a life free of suffering without God's grace and without God's comfort in it? Or would you prefer to have a life that involves suffering, but in the midst of that suffering, you have someone who suffers with you. God's grace is poured out, His comfort is given to you to where you can turn around and give that comfort to others, which is what Paul says to the Corinthians. God doesn't promise a life without difficulty. In fact, it's just the opposite. Suffering is His will because suffering produces maturity. It forms Christ in you. It helps to you to fellowship with Jesus. Some of the sweetest fellowship I've ever had has come whenever I'm most broken before the Lord. And suffering for Christ is a witness to the world. And whether it comes a little or a lot, we're to be thankful. Which again requires you to be saved. Probably will require you to be controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Word, under the control of the Spirit. It will require you to be sanctified and self-sacrificing and then obviously submissive. But number seven, it's God's will for you to be thankful. Last turn, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 and 18. It's the rapid-fire statements that Paul makes to the Thessalonian church. Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We could go further, but we'll stop there. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. Would you say that you are a thankful person? In general, are you a thankful person? Are you thankful tonight? If not, you should probably worry more about that than if God wants you to follow a prompting in your head or not. Because if you're not thankful, this passage says that you and I are out of the will of God. It doesn't mean that we're out of the salvation of God, but clearly we're outside of what God desires us to be, and we would want to get under that or get in that. So Paul, in this staccato, rapid-fire action, uh, the statement says here, joy is always appropriate for the Christian. Rejoice always. Joy is always appropriate for the Christian. Prayer is always needful. Pray without ceasing, and thankfulness is always God's will in every circumstance. In fact, it's a hallmark of being a believer. Romans chapter 1 describes why the wrath of God is, is coming on unbelievers. And long before he gets to the passages about homosexuality, which are clearly there, Romans 1.21 gives one of the reasons that God's wrath comes. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. 
but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, when you think about the sins that mark an unbeliever, yeah, homosexuality, yeah, they're idolatry, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator, would, would you put being unthankful in that category? I think it would be natural to do that, but, but it says they refuse to give their creator thanks. They refuse to acknowledge him. And Romans 3 says it this way, they, 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 there's no fear of God before their eyes. So people who don't fear God have no reason to give Him thanks because they don't even acknowledge who He is. Unbelievers are unthankful. They don't give God credit. They take credit for themselves or something else. And in their unbelief, they don't thank the one who made them and gave them all things. But we, we are different, aren't we? I mean, we know God. We understand who He is. We don't worship the, the creature. We worship the Creator and what He's done for us. And as we do, we give Him thanks. Isn't that one of the first things that came into your heart if you came to Christ? I mean, I, I've told you my story before. When I walked the aisle, the preacher stuck the microphone in my face and said, How you feel? You know, well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I wish I'd have done this a long time ago. I think that's what I said or something like that. I remember the story of one man repeated, I don't remember even where I heard it from, but a, an old farmer who got saved, they put the microphone in his face or asked him that question, how do you feel? He said something to the effect of, I, I've washed with all kinds of soap before, but I ain't never felt this clean. And you do, you feel the burden lifted, and the forgiveness of the Lord, and you know your sins have been washed away cast as far as east is from west, but, but very closely on the heels of that is thanksgiving. God has forgiven me, and I am so thankful. Your heart just floods with that joy that's there. I'm forgiven, and God, I thank you for that forgiveness. You know you had nothing to do with it. It was Him. Don't get too used to your salvation that you get used to what God's done for you, and you fail to be thankful. Why wouldn't we be thankful? We, we deserve wrath that we get to go to heaven. We're forgiven and blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We're sealed. We're secure. Christ is coming for us, part of His church. And He's told us specifically what His will is in these areas. It's His will that you be saved, others be saved. It's, it's His will that you're controlled by the Spirit, that you're sanctified, you're sacrificing, you're suffering, and you're submissive, and that you're thankful. To pursue those things, and God will bring about His kind providence in all these other areas of life. Keswick mysticism is Satan's tool to keep Christians bound up looking for something that God prom never promises to give, His mysterious will, from a place that God never said that you would find it in your heart or your mind, so that you'll waste all your time doing that and not grow in what can truly transform you, the Bible. So how about it, these things in your life? Let me pray with you. Father, I'm so thankful to have a Bible. So thankful that the more I study it, the more I understand it. I'm so thankful that when I started, I knew knew nothing but you didn't leave me there and you didn't 
reject me for not knowing your word, even though I grew up around it. And I'm so thankful that you spell out specific things. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not lie. There is no gray area there. It is a specific command. And even tonight, we know specifically what your will is. But Lord, we, we confess there are other areas that are a matter of discernment, a matter of conscience. You have to piece a number of things together and, and seek counsel. But you have given us the promise that if we're doing these seven things and we delight ourselves in the Lord, you'll give us the desires of our heart. And, and you've given us freedom, freedom to choose, freedom to make decisions and then trust your providence. So if there's anybody bound up tonight in just hyper-mysticism, I pray that you would, you would use this message, use these truths, use your word to break them free from that. Is anyone living without consulting your word or, or caring that you'd rein them in through this message in your word? And you would help all of us to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Whether we're, we're present in this body or, or absent, we want to be pleasing to you that you might be glorified. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.